Happy Lord's Day. Every Sunday we get to celebrate, and we will, if you're faithful, never go more than six days between uh, being together. And uh, when you go to heaven, you will have worshipped God in the last week. And I think that's a great thing. Um, Before we pray and get started, uh, I've been asked to kind of go over our schedule. If you're doing uh, Bible Training Institute for credit, we are starting, uh, here's the bad news, now I'll give you the good news. We are starting the final session today for Module 1. That's the bad news. The good news is that uh, for those of you doing the papers and everything, um, in the olden days when we did Bible Training Institute in the evenings, we would place a number of weeks between them, but we're not going to do that uh, because you'd have to skip church. So what we're going to do is a couple of things. Um, First of all, today I'm going to take two weeks on session 14 because I can. Uh, it's, we just have time to do this. There's, there's no rush. Um, the, the poor kids who are going through BTI, when they get to the end of Module 1, they're going to wonder why it took so long, but they'll live through it. So we'll take two weeks on Session 14, which means if you're writing your papers, you have an extra week to do that. The second bit of good news is that I will put somewhere between one and two Sundays between next week and when we start Module 2. Um, I'll probably do a Q&A, and then I also I always have a couple of special little things. I never know where to squeeze it in, and so I just kind of throw it in there. Um, so, in other words, this gives you this week, next week, and one to two more Sundays to get everything in uh, so that you can be ready for Module 2. Don't uh, hesitate to get ready for Module 2. We'll send out uh, information about it here soon. Okay, well with that, we're going to start looking at um, books of First and Second Samuel, really one book in the Hebrew Bible. Let's pray for just a moment. Our Father, we thank you for this time this morning to begin to awaken our minds, to sharpen ourselves, Lord, to sharpen our thinking, to be renewed in our minds. You've commanded us to do this. You have told us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, as our act of spiritual worship, and that we are to be renewed in our minds. We are to know you and to understand you more. And so sharpen us today, Lord. We don't come just to feel something. We don't come just to be uh, somehow excited emotionally. Those things will happen if we will know who you are. If we will know our great and mighty God, then the excitement of our souls is based on the foundation of truth. And we pray, Lord, that that would be our foundation this day. Let this be a glorious Lord's day. And for every person here, when we lay our heads on our pillows tonight, we would thank you for the word of God and for feeding our souls this day. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, we're going to, and I don't have my little clicker there. There we go. Um, We're going to look today, start looking at uh, the book of Samuel. No, we're going to look at the existence and nobility of God. (laughs) Um, do Do I need to do a different one? Or is it, uh... okay, all right. So while they're doing that, um, the real the real movers and shakers in the church are always in that booth back there because I'm at their mercy and they're good men. Um, Samuel is a better way to think about uh, the books of First and Second Samuel because it puts the story together. And I always encourage you when you get to the end of First Samuel, read the first chapter of Second Samuel, so you make that connection. But in the Hebrew Bible, it's just the book of Samuel. In the Septuagint, it's uh, the book of First and Second Kingdoms, 
And that, that makes sense to us because uh, the book is very much about setting up a kingdom. In the Latin Vulgate, the, uh, the Latin translation of the Old Testament done in uh, the 3rd century by Jerome, uh, it's called First and Second Kings, and so that confuses us a little bit, so we don't go with that title. The author is unknown. It's not Samuel, though, most likely, because uh, his death is noted about halfway through First and Second Samuel, or Samuel, and so uh, certainly he could write prophetically about all the things that are going to happen. We could make that case maybe for Moses in Deuteronomy 34, who wrote about his own death, but that's a few verses, writing chapters and chapters prophetically. So the, the author is not Samuel. The author is unknown. And um, in case that causes you any consternation, there's a very simple principle to understand. When God wants us to know the biblical authors, it's for a reason and for a purpose. When he doesn't want us to know them, it's for a reason and for a purpose. It's that simple. And so we take that. The dates of the events in the book of Samuel. It goes from the birth of Samuel Right around 1110 B.C., pretty close there, to the last words of David in 970 B.C. So we're talking about 140 years or so. Uh, This is a a long period of time. The events slow down in Samuel. There is almost uh, more than, rather, double the length of the book of Judges, and it's devoted to about half the time. The book of Judges is over about 300 years or so, But Samuel doubles that length of actual words and slows the time down. And so that means whenever time slows down in Scripture, that means that the Lord wants us to pay more attention um, in that particular case. So what we're going to do today is I'm going to walk through the historical and theological themes. I want to talk to you about the Davidic Covenant And then I'm going to stop when we get to literary structure because at that point, um, I want to spend a long time, longer time talking to you about the Davidic covenant and the kingship um, issue. There's a kingship issue in that God promised a king in the book of Deuteronomy and then when Israel asks for one, he says they're in sin. And so we're going to deal with that issue um, at length next week. But for now, we'll just kind of lay the foundation. The historical and theological theme, themes, the, the... Septuagint calls it the book of first and second kingdoms. And so you would expect then that the major theme is king. And the theme of king is huge in first Samuel. First Samuel 8, the people have rejected Yahweh's kingship. And this basically puts it on par with idolatry. Puts, puts Israel in this position of idolatry. And I want to read this section to you. We have time to do this today. 1 Samuel 8 says, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. That's the southernmost part of Israel. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they have said to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. 
according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So then Samuel calls the people together and who, who want a king, and they say, okay, you're going to get a king. This is a, this is a case of the Lord um, saying, I'm going to give you what you ask for because it's going to teach you a lesson. And so listen to what Samuel says. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. And now what, what goes on from here is the, the implication is that what he's going to say is that this is overstepping kingship. It is overstepping authority. It is taking too much. It is being more of a tyrant and less of a king. So listen carefully. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. In other words, he's going to begin conscription and not to defend from enemies, not to deal with a real problem, but simply to uh, say, I want a big army that makes me look good. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. Did you catch that? Some to plow his ground and reap his harvest. He's going to take people into conscription in order to, uh, to make his own wealth grow. It will be for selfish purposes. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. What does that mean? That means he's going to use government funds to fund ridiculous things that have nothing to do with what the government's supposed to be doing. He's going to take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. What is that? That's high taxes. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. Now, hold on a minute. Well, a tenth, that's a tithe, right? That's what you're supposed to do. No, the tithe was to go to the Levites to help them run a theocratic nation not a nation under a sinful human king. So now he's going to raise taxes. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. In other words, he's going to create a society where people are subservient to him and are dependent on government. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Not kidding at all. I listened to a sermon by a pastor that I respect very much, and the sermon was called from 1 Samuel 8, Why God is a Republican. (laughs) What did we just go through there? That a wicked king will raise taxes, will enslave people, will make the government do things at a cost that government was never meant to do. And so that's the warning that he gives. Now, Uh, We'll deal next week more with the fact that God does want a king in Israel, but not yet. It isn't time yet. And so they wanted a king, and verse 20 says, but the people refused to obey the voice of the Lord. Sorry, verse 19. No, there shall be a king over us. Verse 20, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. There it is. They just said, we want to copy everyone else. We want to be like everyone else. That is when you've lost the spiritual battle. That's in our, in our day, that would be like the church saying, well, we want to do what the world tells us to do. Why? They have nothing to say. 
They have zero understanding. They have no spiritual discernment whatsoever. And yet the nation has said, we want to be like all these other nations. We, want, we are looking to them as our example. And so it said they wanted a king like the nations to fight our battles. What a slap in the face to Yahweh, the one who led them through the Red Sea, the one who destroyed the greatest army on earth with a word, the one who has led them and kept them and fed them all of these centuries. No, we want a king. We won't take God. We'll just take a man. And that's their trade. Well, Yahweh has been the one fighting for Israel all this time. And so what this is, is this is a rejection of Yahweh as their warrior king. That's a whole other concept that we see in Scripture, the warrior king. That is something we could preach on for many weeks as Jesus Christ is the ultimate warrior king. But they've rejected him. We don't want God as our king. Why is that? Well, because they stopped having faith. You you can't see God, but they could see a man. They could see somebody who's big and tall and strong, and they would have faith in that. Now, God had raised up judges. The judges both delivered and they judged. Exactly, by the way, what Israel was asking for in a king. There was no difference. If you study the life of Samuel, Samuel was very king-like. I mean, really, in a lot of ways, Samuel was the first one in Israel ever to act truly like a king. Yahweh exercised his kingship through human representatives. That's what, he was, that's what he was doing. He did that through Moses, then through Joshua. They weren't kings. They were representing God. The anointed one, in other words, a, a representative of God. Until now, the only anointed, the only separate ones, the only people that were set apart as really special were the priests. Um, but now the anointed one, this is a term that uh, David used to speak of King Saul. And so now you begin to have this idea that the people want somebody who's special, not sent by God, but somebody that they'll, they'll uh, design. So let me put it to you this way. God has a resume for the perfect king. Israel had a resume for an imperfect king. Israel said, we'd rather have the imperfect king. We'd rather have the king after our own design. And so the book of Samuel then anticipates the ultimate king, the ultimate king is introduced in Genesis 49, that the scepter of the Lion of Judah shall not depart. Numbers 24 introduces the anticipation of the ultimate king as well. This would be a great king who would bring blessing to Israel and, and rest from her enemies. So the theme of king is all throughout here, and you'll see throughout Samuel that uh, the failure of kings will also be a major uh, example because what kings what samuel does like the book of judges is it keeps pushing us pushing us toward okay we have these failed judges now we have these failed kings what do we need we need a perfect king and so it pushes us more and more toward christ that's what the old testament does then we have the theme of the instruments of yahweh there's very little mentioned in judges about the instruments but now uh, it becomes much more prominent you have the priests very little is said about them in the book of judges but now they become more prominent um, in samuel it opens with the prophetic word of god samuel first uh, samuel 3 is the lord speaking to samuel and so the word of god through the priests through the through the prophets um, is now coming. Then you have the instrument of the Ark of the Covenant. You barely hear about the Ark of the Covenant in Judges, but now Samuel reintroduces the Ark of the Covenant and the priesthood. Um, the, the Ark 
assumes the existence of a priestly ministry. The priestly ministry has now been revived. You, you read through the book of Judges, you don't f- see any great priests. You don't see any great tabernacle worship. You don't see any great convocations. You don't see all the great sacrifices, all the great meetings together, the holy days that they were supposed to keep. You didn't see that. You just saw this cycle over and over again of, of sin and crying out for help and the judge being sent to save them and then Israel being recalcitrant and doing it again and again and again. You don't see in Judges the Ark of the Covenant. You don't see the priesthood elevated to where it should have been. But the Ark then assumes the fact that the priestly ministry is being revived. And then you have the theme of the prophets. These are still under the instruments. In a theocratic realm, a theocracy is is a nation ruled by God. In a theocratic realm, the prophet is more important than the king. In, in many ways, the prophet is really, he's not ruling the people. He is the messenger of God to the king. And how cool would that be to be the king and to know that a man of God could come in and say, here's what God says to do. And then if you will do that, what does that make you? That makes you a great king because you're simply obeying the Lord. The function of the prophetic relationship with the king was very simply to bring God's word to the king and to encourage him and exhort him to obey. Now, as you read through some of the major prophets, such as uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah, what does their role end up being? It ends up being not going to an obedient king to say, here's the word of God, is going to a disobedient king and saying, here's the word of God, why aren't you doing it? Don't you wish that our kings had that sort of person? The role of the prophet is going to be growing more and more in the book of Samuel and then in the book of Kings. Um, the role of the prophet is huge. In the book of Kings, uh, Elijah and Elisha become really the main characters. The kings become secondary. <clears throat> you have Samuel himself as a prophet. Yes, he was a judge, but he's also a prophet. He hears from the Lord. He speaks the word of the Lord. He is the first of numerous prophets to Israel to be uh, both named and unnamed. Now, you might say, well, there was Moses and, and um, maybe a few others, not officially to the nation that was established in the land. Samuel is really their first national prophet. He first heard from the Lord as a small boy before he could be corrupted uh, by the sinful priestly system. You remember the story that uh, Eli and his sons were worthless? Eli was probably better, but ultimately he raised worthless sons. And Samuel, God got to him when he was tiny, and he taught him before corruption set in. Now the irony is, of course, that Samuel wasn't perfect, and he raised sons that didn't do what was right, but Samuel himself did. Samuel functioned as a prophet, but also in a priestly role because of the unfaithfulness of the priests. Uh, Samuel wasn't a Levite, by the way, but he did function in a priestly role. Now, he also functioned as a judge. We said that, what do you call somebody who is a judge and a prophet and a priest? Well, if he's doing all those things, he's kind of acting like what? Like a king. And so in Samuel, in very shadowed terms, we have sort of a little preview of what a a godly, righteous ruler of a nation could do and ultimately points us to Christ. Samuel is the bridge between the rule of the judges and the rule of the kings. He very much uh, has that overlap. And then later on in his life, Samuel will focus his ministry primarily on Saul. So those are just, that's just under the prophets. And then finally, you have uh, the instrument of Yahweh, the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh. 
And it's so encouraging. I love 1 Samuel 3 where the Lord is calling out to little Samuel and Samuel doesn't know what to do and he runs to Eli and, and says, I keep hearing this voice and, and are you calling me? And finally Eli figures it out and tells Samuel, next time you hear the voice, tell him, Lord, I'm here. And from then on, we see Samuel being a purveyor of the word of God. He's a faithful man. By the way, he, uh, Samuel was... Uh, a Nazarite. And so if you've ever seen uh, cartoon pictures or your coloring pages in Sunday school of, of Samuel with a good 1955 haircut, didn't happen. If he, he grew to be a very old man, so he would have had hair probably down, down to his knees, looking like a wild man because he was a, a speaker for God. So that's under uh, the instruments of Yahweh. Now, obviously, there's going to be some overlap here. We have the theme of the major men. The major men in, in Samuel, obviously the first one is Samuel. So let's do a little bit more about him. In his role as a judge, he exercises a very king-like ministry. He rules over the people after bringing uh, deliverance to them. 1 Samuel 7 shows this. What is Samuel doing? He is single-handedly with God's help. You remember in, in Judges what we said that this cycle that happened over and over again Every cycle got worse. Every judge got worse. And so it's just this, like, circling the drain. Israel is just going down the drain. You read the last three or four chapters of the book of Judges, and, I mean, it's those chapters that you say, I can't even let my kids read this. It's so bad. And yet Samuel now, he begins to reverse the trend single-handedly. And he takes them back. He reverses that downward trend of the judges. He's bringing Israel back into the, the relationship with Yahweh that they had at the time of Moses. And I want to talk about this. This is just a little, little bonus here. Um, I don't think I have a chart up here. That's okay. Um, if you read Exodus chapter 2 and anything you can find about Moses and then read about Samuel, you will find these two guys are like kindred spirits. They are so similar. I'm just going to give you a quick list. This isn't anything you need to remember. But both of them had a remarkable childhood with a faithful mother. Moses was saved by the fact that his mother refused to allow him to be taken by the Egyptians. And of course, there is Hannah, the mother of Samuel, who prayed that glorious prayer. Um, By the way, the prayer which Mary, the mother of Jesus, based her Magnificat, her prayer on. Both of them were raised outside of the family home. Both of them were deprived of the normal family life and they were given a much more special upbringing. Moses was raised in the courts of Pharaoh and Samuel raised in the, in the, uh, the home of Eli, the priest. Both of them disavowed the sinful practices around them, that they, they pushed back against the sin that was in their nation. They both had an initial revelation from Yahweh in the presence of an object that was burning but not consumed. 1 Samuel 3, what happened there? Let me take just a moment and show you this. 1 Samuel 3, verse 3. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Now, why does it say that the lamp of the Lord, the lamp of God, had not yet gone out? That's not just a time marker. That's to say it should have gone out by now. But it didn't. It was still burning. How did Moses first meet God? 
in a burning bush. And so interesting little parallel there. The revelation to both of them began with a double use of the man's name. God called to Samuel in verse 10 of chapter 3. Samuel, Samuel. Exodus chapter 3, when God called to Moses, Moses, Moses. So you have that double use. They are called faithful prophets. Numbers 12, Moses is called faithful. 1 Samuel 3, Samuel is called faithful. They're the only two from the book of Genesis all the way through Kings that are given that particular moniker, that particular name. Both of them were commanded by Yahweh to pronounce judgment. Both killed an enemy of Israel with his own hand. Exodus 2, Moses killed an enemy of Israel with his own hand. In 1 Samuel 15, Samuel hacked King Agag to death. And so both killed enemies of Israel. Both wrote down regulations deposited before God. Deuteronomy 31, Moses writes, of course, the Pentateuch. 1 Samuel chapter 10, in verse 25, says... Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And so both are writers of the word of God. Both functioned as a judge. We've already talked about that. Both functioned as a prophet. We've already talked about that. Both built an altar to God. Moses in Exodus 17 and Samuel in 1 Samuel 7. Neither were priests, but both performed priestly activities. In other words, they stepped in the gap. They weren't priests themselves, but they did perform priestly activities. Both of them had two sons. Both set apart non-family members to lead Israel. And both functioned as transitional figures in Israel's history. The theme of this lesson is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. God raises up another man just like Moses. I would imagine that when Samuel and Moses met in heaven, that one or both of them said, man, we have a lot to talk about. A lot in common. Now what we're doing is in Samuel, we're getting back to the good old days. We're getting back to the good old days. A judge and a prophet who is like Moses has now come to lead them. He's now come to lead them in a way that they hadn't known. Really, this generation had never known. Samuel is very much, I think, an unsung human hero of the Old Testament. He got the nation back to, to worshiping Yahweh like they were at the end of Moses' life. From a human standpoint, let me put it this way. Um, <clears throat> this would be something akin to our election last November where it came down to basically our nation is divided 50-50 ideologically. This would be something along the lines of by the next election having one side or the other 90-10. That's not going to happen, and yet it did happen in the lifetime of Samuel, that he turned the whole nation around single-handedly. How did he do that? Proclamation of the word of God, his own faithfulness, his own example, being like Moses. Then you also have Saul. Saul is going to be major, obviously, in the book of Samuel. He's introduced as a mighty man of valor, and the whole emphasis on Saul is on the physical, that he's, he's taller than everyone else, and he's bigger than everyone else. He's a He would be a king like other nations have. You remember what he did right before he was supposed to be uh, crowned? Nobody could find him because he was hiding. That was his real heart. He did not have the heart of a king. He had the heart of a coward. 
He lacked the spiritual attitudes necessary to be a successful king. He was hollowed out. He was not real. 1 Samuel 31, the house of Saul suffers a devastating loss. He loses his own life and he loses the life of four sons all at once. So that is God's indictment on him. Israel didn't just need a warrior king. They didn't need a guy who could swing a sword. They didn't need a guy who was tall and big and could lead them in the battle. That's what they said they wanted. What they needed was somebody who was righteous. They needed somebody who would say, when we're in trouble, we don't pull our swords out. We pull our Bibles out and we trust the Lord first and we follow his instruction. He, he needed to be a king that would lead them to worship Yahweh who would lead them to say, here are my words to you as king. Let me introduce one of our prophets to speak to you as well, to speak the word of God to you. That's what they needed. But instead, he presented himself and was presented as one who would just be mighty in battle. And we see a little hint of what, how that really worked out in 1 Samuel when we see this standoff between the armies of Israel and the armies of the Philistines and they're at a standoff because this guy named Goliath has come along and challenged uh, Israel to send somebody out to one-on-one battle. Saul, that's supposed to be you. But I I don't know what he said, but I would imagine it would be something like, you know, I'm far too important. Uh, I need to hold back here. Let's let's find somebody else. That's like uh, uh, John Kerry recently saying that he's going to fly his private jet all over the world to um, talk about global warming and because he's more important than other people. He said that himself. In his position, he needs to do that. That's Saul's attitude. Well, uh, I can't go out and fight this guy. Well, what would we say to him? You're the biggest guy here. Who else is supposed to do it? But he didn't do it. And along comes a little boy. Hey, David, who is this guy? And he fills his sling with a stone and takes down Goliath. That's what the king needed to be, somebody who, who faces God's enemies. And David told Goliath, you come to me with a sword and a spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord our God. That's what a king ought to be. And Saul was not that. Which brings us to David. He's one of the major men. There is more narrative material in the Old Testament about David than any other human character. Did you know that? If you want to to take in a chunk of Scripture, read all about David, why is it that David is given more space? I think the simplest answer is that when Messiah comes, when Christ comes, one of his nicknames will be, he is the son of whom? David. And so that gives us a way to understand if Jesus is the son of David, if I understand who David was in all the glorious parts of him, himself and the glorious parts of his kingship, that helps me understand Messiah. And that was never a name that Jesus shunned. He was always uh, happy to be called the son of David. David wasn't a perfect man at all, but the difference between him and Saul is that David wanted God to be exalted. And he was even willing to suffer personal loss for the sake of God. He was willing to um, be very, very humble before God. Yes, he committed some atrocious sins, but he always humbled himself and he always knew that he needed to run to his relationship with his Lord. Unlike Saul, at the end of his life, shamefully is going to the witch of Endor to try to gain some sort of supernatural power aside from God. Even while David was king, though, 
he had a pretty shaky hold on the kingship. Um, his reign was marked by constant turmoil, war. He was a man of blood. God even told him, no, you're not going to build my temple because you have blood all over your hands. We're going to have a man of peace. And so that would be his son, uh, named after the word peace, Shalom, Shalomo, Solomon. And so David kind of sets things up for that. And you read at the end of David's life, he wasn't going to build the temple, but you know what he did? He gathered all the materials for it. He gave most of his personal wealth to the temple. Isn't that great? At Grace Bible Church, on occasion, we pray for uh, a saint to just say, on my way out of this world, all of my wealth goes to you. That's kingdom focus. But then we have children who, who uh, have trouble with that, so that probably won't happen. But David was a man of war, and yet he also defended his kingdom. And so what you had was this, this warrior king that begins to give us a little bit of an idea what a warrior king is supposed to look like. A man who worshiped God with all of his heart. He danced before the Lord when the Ark of the Covenant was being brought to Jerusalem. Um, not ashamed to worship God, even to his own hurt. And so he was uh, one of the major characters in Samuel. Which brings us to, and we'll finish with this today, the Davidic Covenant. The Davidic Covenant, and I'm sorry, we'll do two more pieces here. The Davidic Covenant, Second Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 23, verse 5. The covenant is promised in 2 Samuel 7. And then it's confirmed in 2 Samuel 23, 5. Here's the confirmation. For does not my house so stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire. This is, this is David confirming the fact that God has made a covenant with him. And he calls it an everlasting covenant. Now when was the actual covenant made? And when was it ratified? There's no record of that. This was, a, this was an interaction between God and David that's not recorded. What we have is the interaction of the promise of the covenant. The confirmation that the covenant has occurred. And somewhere in between God actually made the covenant with him. Uh, let me give you the example. If you're wondering what I mean by when is the covenant made and ratified. God's covenant with Abraham was given in Genesis chapter 12. But then in Genesis 15, you have this incident where, where Abraham is instructed to take sacrificial animals and cut them in half and put them in a row. And the idea here is, and this is a common practice in the ancient Near East, that both members of the covenant, both parties that were signing this agreement, were to pass through ceremonially this little uh, row of cut up animals. And the idea was, may I be like these animals if I ever break this covenant. And you remember what God did? He put Abraham to sleep. And God passed through the sliced up animals to say, I will keep this covenant. But it was a one-way covenant in which Abraham was not uh, held responsible. That If Abraham disobeyed, God was still going to keep his covenant with Abraham. That was sort of a ratification. That was the, the seal of approval on the covenant. We don't have a record of that with David. There was something special that happened between him and the Lord. We know he promised the covenant and we know David said the covenant has come. And you're searching the pages going, but when did it? We're not told. Here's the promise. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 15. And by the way, this is an example of what we call near and far fulfillment of prophecy. You'll see what I mean here in a minute. Near and far fulfillment of prophecy. 
When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, your seed, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, is this Solomon or is this Jesus Christ? In this case, yes. All of the above. He shall build a house for my name and I shall establish the throne of his kingdom. Then you get to the forever part. Oh, not Solomon. The throne of his kingdom will have to be Christ. But now is where you get to the near and far fulfillment. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Yes, that applies both Solomon and Christ. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Now we're not talking about Christ. This is near fulfillment only. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. What's the basic gist of the promise of the Davidic covenant? God has made David an amazing promise. A descendant from your body will reign on planet earth forever and ever. That's a pretty cool promise. And I think maybe that's the reason that the actual giving and ratification of that covenant isn't recorded. I I think that's something too glorious for us to read in words. Um, I hope that uh, somebody took a video. You know, I hope uh, Angel Gabriel is there with his, with his phone going, I, I want to catch this. That would have been a great moment. Then one more theme, and that is the sovereign. I'm sorry, I missed that one. I don't have it up there. Okay, so I'll just read it to you. The, uh, the sovereign action of Yahweh. Don't know why that's on the slide, and I apologize. The sovereign action of Yahweh is the, the fifth major theme. Just so you know what we're at here. The king, instruments of Yahweh, major men, Davidic covenant, and finally the sovereign action of Yahweh. Basically, the, one of the kind of sub-themes in how God works out his sovereignty in the book of Samuel is he pulls down the proud and disobedient and he lifts up the humble and the obedient. We see this all throughout Samuel. He pulls down the proud and disobedient and lifts up the humble and obedient. For example, Hannah's prayer of chapter 2. A key theme in the prayer is exalting and praising God because he exalts the humble and brings down the proud. Mary prayed this as well in the book of Luke. It culminates in a prophetic kind of amen of Messiah King coming and defeating his enemies. Hannah starts off just thanking God that that God's going to answer her prayer for a son. And it ends with this glorious section about that your man will come and defeat all the enemies. 1 Samuel 2.10 The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Lots and lots of women have prayed to have a baby. I don't think any of them have ever ended their prayer like that. But this is God pulling down the proud and disobedient, lifting up the humble and obedient. You have Hannah versus Penina. You remember the, the two wives of Elkanah? Why any man would take on two, I don't know. That's, that was his problem. But what was Penina doing? She was making fun of Hannah. Look, I'm pregnant again. Look, I'm pregnant again. Look, I've had my 57th child. And oh, you don't have one. I'm sorry. What happened to Hannah? Hannah gave birth essentially to the first king-like figure in Israel. She gave birth to the boy that would anoint David. And by the way, had a bunch of other kids after that. God switched their roles. 
You have Samuel versus the sons of Eli. The sons of Eli die in God's judgment. And Samuel is exalted as a priest, a judge, a king-like figure. You have the Ark versus the Philistines. The Philistines have the Ark of the Covenant, and it's not going well for them. You have Israel versus the Philistines. Now the Philistines are humbled uh, by Israel and by God. You have Saul, who's pulled down in anticipation of a man better than Saul being exalted. Uh, All of 2 Samuel is basically the story of the exaltation of David and the crushing of all of his enemies. And then you have, of course, David the proud being brought low and the word of God through Nathan is exalted. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago in our Backstage Before Bethlehem series. 2 Samuel 21, David is exalted. 2 Samuel 24, David the disobedient is humbled. So all throughout Samuel, you have the proud and the high who are crushed, and you have the humble and the obedient who are lifted up. Good lesson for us. Finally, the purpose of Samuel. Yahweh established a human monarchy over his theocratic nation, Israel, and guaranteed its future in his covenant with David. That's what this book is about. Yahweh established a human monarchy over his theocratic nation, Israel, and guaranteed its future in his covenant with David. I'm going to talk about this a little bit more this morning, but, um, you know, we talk about uh, separation of church and state, and there's some good reasons for that. A lot of that is based in Puritan theology, by the way. But a state, a government, never, from Genesis to Revelation, Revelation, is ever meant to be a holy secular institution, ever. It is always meant to be uh, an institution that bows to the will of God, that is led by people who would would, uh, trust the Lord. And so that's what God is doing. He is in Israel as a, as a microcosm of what he will do in the, in the whole world. He's establishing a theocratic nation with a human representative. Now, what was God's purpose for mankind all the way back in Genesis 1? God made them in his image and he gave them a task to rule and subdue. Mankind has always been called to be the kings and the queens over God's earth in his representing him and the way that will be ultimately worked out is through a perfect man the Lord Jesus Christ who will rule not just a theocratic nation Israel but will rule a theocratic world and so we see Samuel is just a little microcosm of the glory that's coming and so uh, it's encouraging to me I hope it is to you as well any we have time for a couple of questions on Samuel so far next time we'll look at um, the Davidic covenant a little bit more detail any questions so far? I've kind of told you everything I know, but uh, we can. Did I just uh, did I just shake your confidence? Any questions on anything else? I've got three minutes. How are you guys doing writing your essays? I heard a groan. I saw. <laughs> I know it's hard when you're like, I haven't written an essay in twenty years. But it's good for you. It shakes the cobwebs out of your out of your brain. What's the what's the theology essay for this time around? I'm, I'm forgetting. Is it the, um, the attributes of God? Is that one okay? Theology proper. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, next time I'll give you a little preview. We're going to trace 
the, uh, the development of the Davidic covenant all through the book of Samuel. I just want to show that to you. And then we're also going to uh, do a couple of interpretive issues, um, particularly the ministry of the Holy Spirit, because it's a little confusing in Samuel compared to what we know in the New Testament. And then we're going to talk about the kingship. Why is it that God said, I'm bringing a king? And then when Israel said, we want a king, he was displeased with that. So we'll talk about that some. So with that, why don't we close in prayer and then we'll be done for today and we'll continue next time. Thank you, Father, for the book of, uh, in our Bibles, First and Second Samuel. We're thankful for the example of Samuel. We're thankful for the warning of Saul and we're thankful for the hope given in David. Lord, we are um, excited to understand that your plan has always been the same that you will place a perfect king on the throne of Israel and on the throne of the world. And Samuel gives us a small little preview of that, Lord. May it make us look forward to the kingdom of Christ on this earth. And we pray in his name, amen.